0: Have you ever desperately asked this question, what should we do? What should we do? Usually, there's an emergency at stake. Usually, there's fear involved. Usually, there's confusion as to what is the next step. Uh, This summer, my wife and I were doing some traveling and my mother lives in Spain and so we were visiting my mother and we decided we would uh, just drive down to Portugal. And so we drove down to Portugal. We were down there and it happened to be that this summer was very, very dry and there was fires that were breaking out around Europe. And so I put in my GPS in the morning. I was going from Portugal back to Spain And we saw on the news massive forest fires in Portugal. So I said, okay, shouldn't affect us. Sure enough, got out there, and we saw the smoke. I mean, it was billows, billows of huge forest fires. And my GPS was taking me right into the fire. And I thought, well... I could probably drive around this fire. So I started driving, and it seemed like the more I drove, the more we seemed to go right into the fire. Roads were blocked. Expressways were down. Police were redirecting people. And I was driving, saying, I'm going to figure this out. I just have to drive around the fire. And my wife was in the car, and she looked at me, and she says, you're driving us right into the inferno. What are we going to do? Like, okay, settle down. I'm not going to... Drive you into the fire. It's like, what should we do? Finally, we figured it out. I had to drive about an hour and a half around this fire to get around it. But there was an urgency. What's going on with our life? Are we going to die in a fire? In Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 41, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. There's a group of people that ask themselves this question, what shall we do? They also were concerned. They also were gripped with a bit of fear. They also were confused about what is the next step. But this didn't have anything to do with a forest fire. This had to do with their spiritual life. So, I want us to look at this passage today as we start the series entitled Discipleship 101. You may remember the story, those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, of Acts chapter 2. Earlier on in the day, 120 people had gathered in an upper room, and what was predicted by the prophet years ago happened. There was a sound, there was a powerful roar, and the Spirit of God came upon these 120 in that upper room in a supernatural way. Many scholars, most theologians believe that was the beginning of the church, the birth of the church. We we call it the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a festival, uh, a a feast in Jerusalem that uh, people from all over the world Jewish people from all over the world would go to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the day of Pentecost. And so 120 people were gathered in the upper room. Jesus had already uh, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. The disciples were gathering around. Jesus had said, wait, because there will be power that will come upon you from on high. He had told his disciples, you're going to receive a power that you don't have. There will be a baptism of po- power that will come upon you that you currently don't have. And when you have that baptism of power, then you will be my witnesses, uh, not only here in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, sure enough, as had been predicted hundreds of years before, on that day, the Holy Spirit, the, the, you say, Well, what is the Holy Spirit? God is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force, it's not a wind. The Holy Spirit is a person, but he comes with power. And so the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 in a supernatural way to give them power to be able to be witnesses. In fact, it was so supernatural that there were Jewish people from all over different countries around the world and the Holy Spirit gave these 120 the ability to speak in different languages so that people were hearing the gospel in their languages and amazed that people that didn't speak the language suddenly were witnessing to them in their languages. And then the apostle Peter on that same day got up And all these people gathered around to see what had happened, uh, see what they wanted to talk about. And the Apostle Peter explained the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, and that he was the Savior of the world. And after he had finished preaching, all these individuals asked this question, what shall we do? Some of you today have been following Jesus for a long time. Some of you are brand new. Some of you in this auditorium are not yet followers of Jesus. You're still figuring it out. Do I want to do that? Is that what I want to commit myself to? But whether you have followed Jesus for a long time or whether you are just new, this is an important question. What shall We do. I'm going to explain to you out of this passage. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And the apostle Peter gives them an action plan. This is one of the most important messages in Christianity. This determines whether someone is in Christianity or out of Christianity. The Bible refers to a follower of Jesus as a disciple. I know that some of you, when you think of disciple, you think of the 12 disciples of Jesus, Uh, but really the word disciple means an apprentice, a follower, someone that's engaged in a different way of living that's following someone. In this case, it happens to be Jesus. So today, as we look at what shall we do, I want to make sure you understand, it's clear in your mind um, whether you are A, a follower of Jesus. I want you to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And B, I want you to understand what it takes to make a follower of Jesus. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called, you have this mission to help others become followers of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? If you're not a follower of Jesus, then you have the responsibility to think through, to examine, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Some of you are followers of Jesus, but you've never helped anybody else become a follower of Jesus. You're like, hey, it's good for me. It's changed my life. I'm so grateful. Uh, Man, I was a mess before. I'm forgiven. I love following Jesus, but you have no idea how to help someone else become a follower of Jesus besides like, hey, let's go to church. You could talk to Pastor Mark. Maybe he can help you out. No, 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 no. If you are a follower of Jesus... You need to be equipped to help others become followers of Jesus. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, implicit in our discipleship is that we help others become followers of Jesus. So if you've been confused a little bit about what does it mean, we're going to break this down today in, in Discipleship 101, so that we can have a clear understanding of what does it mean to be a follower and how do we make followers. Are you with me here today? All right. So, they say, what shall we do? And Peter answers them in this iconic verse. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me break this down for you. He gives them two action steps. Number one, the first action step is this, repent. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word repent. Some of you, what comes to your mind is some sweaty preacher in a tent, angry, red-faced, with a handkerchief, yelling at people and saying, repent! Uh, Nowadays, you don't hear that word very much, repent. It seems like an old-fashioned word. It seems like a word from a different era and so but it's implicit in the message of the gospel it's embedded in the message of the gospel and it's the first step that the Bible talks about when we are choosing to follow Christ so what does it mean to repent in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 when Jesus first started preaching his very first message, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Peter is preaching a message and he also says, Repent. So, what exactly does it mean to repent? The word repentance is a, it literally in the Bible means the act of changing one's mind. In other words, I had a mindset in one direction, and repentance means that I've turned around from that mindset and I'm going in a different direction. Uh, yeah, repentance means a change of direction. Now, let me tell you, biblical repentance doesn't mean I feel remorse or regret or bad about something or guilty about something. If you feel bad, remorseful, shame, guilty, but there is no change, you have not repented. Let me say that again. To feel bad about something, remorseful, guilty, but not change, is not repentance. Repentance means that we actually turn from a certain way of living, a certain Engagement, a certain way of thinking, and that we actually turn around in our action, our behavior, and our mentality, and that we go in a different way. That's repentance. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us that you really can't turn towards God without turning from the things that God is against. Now, now hear me well. If you are coming to God today... I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm telling you. The Bible does not say that you have to clean up your act, clean up your language, get rid of those really, really, really short shorts. Get a really, really, really big Bible. Learn how to say hallelujah, praise the Lord, and brother, sister, And stop sleeping with your boyfriend, stop snorting cocaine on the weekends, stop getting drunk, stop watching porno flicks, and then you can come and say, okay, I'm ready to give my life to God. The Bible doesn't say that. There is no pre-cleanup process to come to God. People come and say, "Well, you know, I'm not ready to come to Christ because you know you don't know." I've had people, I've had people, I've had people in this congregation. I'm out, they will go unnamed. I had one brother that would always come to church. He, he before he came to Christ, he'd always come to church drunk, halfway drunk. He'd show up at the end of the service and he'd say, "Pastor, I really need God in my life." I said, "Okay, bro, could you come here when you're sober sometime and need God?" I'd happy to. Have. But he always felt guilty. He would come and and let me tell you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've never given your life to Christ, and if you reek like marijuana today, you had to kind of put your spray on so that you don't smell a little bit when you came into church and people were looking at you, listen, you can come to God right now. You say, no, pastor, what about don't I have to go dump everything in the garbage? Don't I have to get rid of my porn? Don't I have to? No, no, no. You come to God right the way you are. Right the way you are. But here's the thing. Uh, Here's the thing. Wait, wait, don't clap yet. But you can't go back right the way you are. There is no pre-washing that you need. But there is a turning around from how I'm living and saying, I reject that life and I choose another life. Uh, There's no prerequisite for salvation. You come the way you are. But salvation implies, being a follower of Jesus implies, that I actually am serious enough about this that everything that I know, I start to turn away from and I choose God's way as opposed to the way that I've been living. That's repentance. If you say, well, I, let me tell you what, God, what, what following Christ isn't. Hey, I'm living my life. I truly really amass, I got some things. I'm, I'm, I'm facing a court case, and they may put me in jail. So before, I'm going to keep living, keep you know sleeping with my girlfriend on the weekends, keep getting drunk, keep you know, doing whatever I'm doing before. But, oh, God, I really need some help. I may, I'm facing two years of prison. Jesus, I need you in my life, so I give my life to you, and then after service I go sleep with my girlfriend again, I get drunk a little bit again. That, that, that's not, that is not repentance. Repentance means I turn from the way that I'm living, and everything I know that I have to get rid of that is, is, is against God, I do it I don't have the power to do it, but I ask that God would give me the strength and power. It doesn't mean perfection, but it means that I choose to live in a way that is God's way, that is different than the way that I've been living. Are you tracking with me? There is no salvation without repentance. God isn't an addition to your life. There is no such thing as a follower of Jesus who has not repented that does not exist in the biblical understanding of being a follower of Jesus uh, so uh, the bible now people get confused you say pastor i thought you know i i thought all i had to do was believe and that i could be saved and now you're telling me that i have to repent i don't understand do i believe or do i repent do i have to do both why does the bible sometimes simply say believe for example Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Aha! It doesn't say repent. Has anybody got confused about that sometimes? Say, Am I to believe? To repent? Is it both? Let me tell you, here's the answer. The answer, and sometimes in the Bible it says believe and be baptized, sometimes it'll say repent and be baptized. And so, some of you are confused. Do I believe? Do I repent? What is it exactly? Let me tell you. You cannot truly believe without repenting. And you cannot truly repent without believing. So, sometimes they are used interchangeably. Are you with me here? Let me explain it this way I'm driving down the expressway in Chicago. Our bridges because of lack of maintenance and low-budgeting, a a part of I-55 just collapses. So they put up signs, road gone, red signs, barriers, turn around, don't keep going. I'm driving down and, and I see the sign, bridges collapsed. If I truly believe that the bridges collapse, then I turn around and I go a different way. I can read the sign, but I think, oh, these Chicago people are always trying to redirect traffic. They're trying to scare me. I'm just gonna keep driving. So if I see it and I don't believe it, then I keep driving. Are you, are you tracking with me? So here's the thing. If I truly believe, then I will repent. And if I truly repent, I've had, I've had to believe in order to repent. So, when the Bible says believe, it implies repentance. When the Bible says repent, it implies belief. Am I losing anybody here today? Okay, I got five of you that are still uh, with me here. Okay. Just nod at me if you're... These are important. Listen, this isn't minutia. This is important. I'm talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This isn't a side issue. This is a big issue. So repent. The second thing that he tells us, uh, Peter said to them two things, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about that for a second. What does it mean to be baptized and why is that so important? There's a lot of confusion about baptism. And by the way, can I just say, this is a big one, it's it's sort of understood. What we believe is the message of Jesus. Why do I repent? I believe that Jesus was all God and became all man. I believe that I have sin in my life that separates me from the holiness of God. I believe that there's nothing that I can do to save myself. I can't work at it. I can't be religious enough. I can't pay down my debt. Someone has to pay it for me. And so I come to Jesus saying, you died on the cross, you're the perfect sacrifice, I receive the gift of your forgiveness upon me because I can't pay for it myself. So I believe in the message and because I believed in the message that you are Lord and there's no other way to God, then I'll turn from the way that I'm living and I'll follow you God. That's what we're believing. Okay, are we clear with that? That's called the gospel, the good news. I know this is basic for some of you, but I think that we have to go back to the basics oftentimes because there's a lot, if you don't get the basics right, then you don't get Christianity right. Are you tracking with me? This is really important. So, what does it mean to be baptized? In Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, the Apostle Paul says, We were therefore buried with them through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. People ask me sometimes, hey, pastors, new life, is that in the Bible, the name of the church, new life? Absolutely. Romans chapter 6, write it down. So that we too may live a new life. Uh, If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Baptism proclaims something. A baptism identifies a believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In this next service, there's going to be a baptism. It's, it's going to happen right over there in that baptistry. Um, you'll notice that we, it, it really is inconvenient. Because we have to fill up a whole tank of water. It would be a lot easier to sprinkle, let me tell you. Seriously. Sprinkle. We don't have to fill up a tank. We have to drain it. Some people think it's too cold. Sometimes it's too hot. Our heater's gone out before. People are freezing. Uh, we have to, this is a whole tank of water. You say, well, why don't you just like get a little bit Glass of water, and you know, they can come up here and just kind of sprinkle all of them a little bit. And maybe some of you were sprinkled, and I don't want to undermine how you were baptized, maybe as an infant, as a child. But the word baptism means to immerse. Let me say that again. The word baptism means to immerse, it doesn't mean to sprinkle, it means to immerse. When someone gets baptized, there is a symbolic physical act that reflects a powerful spiritual experience. We take a person and we take them all the way under the water. Now, now I've seen some people resist going all the way underwater. Sometimes people, you know we have to kind of dunk them twice, come all the way under. That happens in a river. That happens in a tank like this. I mean, wherever there's enough water. The the image behind this is this. I was alive. When I came to Jesus, just like Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, I, too, have died to my old self. I've buried my old self, and I'm coming out as a new self. I'm resurrected as a new person. Follow it? Just as Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected, we as followers of Jesus have a spiritual death. What do we die to? Jesus said that you cannot follow him unless you die to yourself. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. In other words, when you come to Christ, you don't add God to your life. You die to who you were and you say, my life no longer is mine my old self that was run by the flesh and all its desires, it's dead. It's crucified. It's no longer me. Now there's a new self made in the image of Jesus, empowered by God, cleansed and washed with different desires that is resurrected. Oh, I may look the same on the outside. I may still have the flab that I had before. I may still uh, have the same issues that I had physically before. But listen, it's a different me. The old self has been dead. This is a new self resurrected, made in the image of God empowered by God. The Bible also calls it being born again. Now notice I've never said anything about joining a church, being a member of a church. I've never said anything about the works that you have to do. I'm talking about a spiritual experience that transforms you from the inside out. I'm talking about spiritual uh, I, I'm talking about someone that surrenders their life to God and say, I died to who I was. That's why if you become a believer, you start talking different, thinking different, walking different, marrying different, raising your kids different, your perspective on life is different. Why? Because the old self is dead. And now you're resurrected to a new self in Jesus. And so baptism is a symbolic gesture of that. Now, now I want you to hear me well. You are not saved through baptism. You're not saved through baptism. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. And by that I mean that it's not the act of baptism that saves you. But a true believer that's given their life to Christ will get baptized to show the world that they are a follower of Jesus. It's not marriage that causes you to fall in love with your spouse. But marriage makes it public and official. Are you tracking with me? When someone gets married, I hope that a couple before they get married already committed to each other saying it's one-on-one, we're, we love each other. Um, I just married a couple, uh, I think it was last week, I just married a couple, I don't know if they're here, Nancy and Eric, you guys in the house or not? Uh, okay, you're still on your honeymoon. Um, <laughs> And uh, he was super nervous, super nervous. I said, You okay? Yeah, I'm just really nervous right now. Why was he nervous? Because he's about in front of a bunch of people to declare his love to. to now, does he already love her? Yeah. And some people say, Ah, it's just a piece of paper. Does it matter? No, it does matter. It does matter. Because what marriage does is it makes it official. It makes it public. You exchange rings. You say vows. It makes this legit before the world. Baptism is to a relationship what marriage uh, is to Christianity, what marriage is to a relationship. You're standing before the world, and I want you to notice this. We do not do private baptisms. Someone says, hey, pastor, I want to get baptized, but I want to do it in private. <laughs> Why? I just, I don't want anybody in my business and all this, you know, baptism. I don't like to be in front of people, and I just don't. No, nope, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I want you to go public about Jesus. I want people all around to say, oh, you're one of those Jesus followers? Just like if someone were to tell me, hey, I'm going to get married, but don't tell anybody about it, which is a private real." I don't mind small ceremonies, but I don't want secret ceremonies. Why don't you... Hey, Pastor, shh, I'm not going to wear a ring either. No, 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 no. If you're going to marry this woman, you better wear a ring. I want to see it on you. I'm going to look for it because I want people to know I am married. I'm taken. I made a commitment, public celebration of our commitment to one another. Baptism is the same way. That's why Jesus made a big deal about baptism. It's the physical step of a private spiritual decision that you've made, telling the world, I am not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus. So Peter says to this group of people, Peter says to this group of people, "Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, not some of you, not the pastors, not the missionaries, every one of you, repent and be baptized. And um, that day, the Bible says that 3,000 were baptized. You know, sometimes we'll have 12, 13 people say, wow, there's a lot of people baptized. It takes a lot of time. 3,000. 3,000. One day. Why? It's inconvenient. Why? Public declaration. Let me tell you something about this. I run into a lot of people that tell me, you know what, my religious conviction is kind of private. I don't want to, like, pray in public. I don't want to let anybody know. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not a private issue. It starts with a personal decision, but it shouldn't be a private issue. You have to be bold enough to let people know, I'm a follower of Jesus. The Bible says if you do not acknowledge Christ before men, then Christ will not acknowledge you before others. Don't, don't make it private. You can't be a closet Christian. And I've run into closet Christians before, although they find out I'm a Christian. They say, hey, I'm a Christian too. Shh. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Why is this a secret? They may judge me. Shh. No, 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 no. They, you can't be a private Christian. You're not a closet Christian. You need to come out of the closet and say, I'm a follower of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who's changed me. And it's one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life. Now, I'm not telling I'm not telling you to be obnoxious. I'm not telling you to be weird. Um, but I'm telling you to be authentic about following Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that doesn't mean that you're religious. It means that you're committed to Jesus the Christ. So he says, first of all, repent. Then he says, believe. And then he tells us the results of our repentance, our belief, and our baptism. Notice what he says, the results. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, let me just dispel some confusion about this, because in Matthew, chapter eight, tw- uh, Matthew 28, 18 and 19, it says, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, make followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. So when we baptize, in our next service we'll have baptisms, we baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Well, you say, well, why does it say in Jesus? Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. The way into the Father's presence is through Jesus, and so... I've had people come up to people and say, well, you should be baptized only in Jesus' name. And they try to confuse people and say, Jesus' name. If they didn't say Jesus, if it wasn't only in Jesus' name, then it's not real. You're not baptized. No. The Bible says in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptized in Jesus' name. So I add that usually when I'm baptizing just so there won't be confusion. But in essence, what you're saying is I'm not being baptized in the name of a church. Hello. We don't get up there and say we baptize you in New Life Church's name. A church can't save you. A church can't change you. A c- church can't transform you. We baptize you in the name of Jesus the Christ who's the Messiah. You're not, ba- you're not baptized in the name of a pastor. You're not baptized in the name of a church. Listen, someone goes to another church and gets baptized in the name of Jesus and then comes here and says, hey, do I have to get rebaptized?" I said, well, why? I, I, what were you baptized in? in? the name of Jesus? No? Hey, same Jesus here as anywhere else. Because you're not baptized in the name of a church or a religion. You're baptized in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. Are we clear about that? So, he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus for this is the result of your believing, repenting, and turning to God. Listen, hear me well. Hear me well. For the forgiveness of your sins. What does that mean? You know, you were born with a sin nature. Every one of us. Except Jesus, because he was not born through the seed of man, he was born of a virgin. The first Adam was born without a sin nature. And the second Adam, who's Jesus, he was born without a sin nature. What is a sin nature? A sin nature is your inclination, your propensity. It determines behavior. You were born with the nature to sin. No one has to teach a little baby when they're two, three. You're like, where did they get this from? I know dads want to say, they got it from their mom's side. So your moms, they must have got it from their dads. Because where's this, all this? Mine. No, you. Ah, you're like, where did, they, where did this come from? Who taught them? Listen, your baby, hate to tell you this, your baby has a sin nature. Give it enough time, they're going to sin. They have a sin nature. They're born with the proclivity, the inclination, the predisposition to sin because they're born with a fallen nature, a sin nature. Now listen to me. That sin nature doesn't condemn them. Their sin condemns them. Some, you, some of you come from religious backgrounds that you were taught if a baby dies, then they, they must be going to purgatory or hell because they were born with the sin nature. No, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe it's our own sin that condemns us, not our sin nature that condemns us. Are you with me here? Okay, so just be clear about that. But when we're old enough to sin, when we're old enough to sin, to go against God, it's our, sin, it's our sin that condemns us before God. You've been sinning since you were a child selfishness, pride, anger, lust, lying, stealing, and some of you have gotten really, really good at it. Your teenage years, you perfected it. Boy, you became an expert at sinning, and some of you have gone on to really be good artists at sinning in many, many, many different ways, but all of us, whether you felt like you sinned a little or sinned a lot, all of us have sinned. And I like to tell people this, you know, you need to understand how much you sinned. Because some people I talk to, I say, well, you need a save." They oh, say, Pastor, I'm not that bad. You should see my neighbor. Man, they are bad. You need to talk to them. I'm pretty much a good citizen, pay my taxes. I don't do bad to anybody unless they hurt me. I, don't, I try not to lie. I don't try to. And they feel like I don't need a Savior because I'm not that bad. Let's rewind a little bit and find out how bad you are. Okay. Say you would sin only three times a day. Three times. That means lust, anger. It means jealousy, pride, sins of the mind, sins of the heart, physical sins, uh, the sins of uh, things that you should do and you don't do. Three times a day makes you Mother Teresa's cousin. Seriously, really, really good. Three times a day, three times a day, in one year, do the math, what is it? It's around 1,000. So if you're Mother Teresa's cousin, you sin about 1,000 times a, a, a year, say you're 40 years old, you are, at Mother Teresa's cousin, you, you, didn't sin that much. you didn't sin when you were a baby until the f- first few years, but you made up for it in your teenage years. That means at 40 years old, you have 40,000 sins against you if you're really good. 40,000 sins against you. Well, and that's a really, really, really good person. You know what God's standard is to make it into heaven? Perfection. Zero. You say, well, Pastor, no one's going to be saved then. Exactly. That's the point. Then none of us can be saved are of our own. We need a Savior. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus the Son. You cannot save yourself. You say, I'm gonna turn around and be really, really, really good. That's all right, at 40 years old, you already have 40,000 sins. God's standard is perfection. You need a savior, I need a savior. You can't pay for your sin, I can't pay for my sin. We need someone that paid for it before us. That means, but you say, well, pastor, you mean if I murdered someone, raped someone, if I killed someone, if I, listen, there's some grotesque, difficult sins that affect a lot of people, and there is some darkness within our soul. Our sins past, present, and future are washed under the blood of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our sins are forgiven. That means that whatever you did before is under the blood of Christ and not held against you before an almighty, holy God. The wrath of God has been dispersed around you so that you don't experience what you should experience. You and I deserve hell and the wrath of God, and it's only, only, the grace of Jesus and his forgiveness that causes us not to experience it. Listen, if you and I understood forgiveness, we would be weeping every day and praising God. We would be worshiping much more radically than we would do. We would be full of gratitude every day that we are washed and cleansed and that the Father says to you, daughter, or says to you, son, that we are not objects of the wrath of God. And then last, I'm running out of time here. Come on now. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Pastor, I don't understand why I need the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you thought it was just for people 2,000 years ago, just to clarify that verse 38 says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and others. This wasn't just for those believers 2,000 years ago. This is for you and I. And you will receive not only the forgiveness of your sins, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, why is that so important? Because you cannot live out your saved self without a power that's greater than you. Christianity is not a self-improvement program. Christianity is not a list of rules that you say, okay, let me try to live by these new rules. Christianity needs for you to live out how God wants you to live. You need a power that's greater than you. You need a force that's higher. You need a spiritual coach, the paraklete, the one that walks along beside you, empowers you, enables you, gives you a source that you don't have on your own, causes you to love when you want to hate, causes you to say no when you want to say yes, causes you to open up your mouth and, and and speak with power about Jesus when you have very little to say. You need a supernatural force inside of you, the power of the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to live out a lifestyle that's almost impossible that you and I could not do in our own power, your body now becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you not only have the forgiveness of sins, your vessel is cleansed. But then it's filled with God. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts you of sin. He empowers you. He guides you. He opens up your eyes. He helps you understand scripture. He baptizes you with love. He convicts you about things that you don't want to give up. He gives you the power to say no, overcome sin in your life. It's God inside of you, God inside of you, empowering you to put to death the old you and live a resurrected you. Hey, this is Discipleship 101. If you have never led anybody to Christ, if you have never explained what it means to be a follower, if you've never walked alongside, if you've never taken anybody to the waters of baptism, then you need to pray, God, help me not just be a disciple, help me make disciples. He said, Pastor me, man, I, I still swear when I'm, you know, car cuts me off, some of the old language pops out. It's like God's working on you. I didn't say disciples have to be perfect. But 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 you should be leading someone to Christ. And I want to see every person here be able to take someone to the waters of the baptism that you've coached and taught and prayed for, and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. you know what I'm telling? I'm talking about the priesthood of all believers. I'm talking about you being the hands and feet of Jesus, not just taken to to a priest, a pastor, a rabbi saying, hey, he's your job. No, 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 no. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then you are called. And now some of you are intimidated by that, but we want to help you do that. We want to encourage you to do that. We have a, a blue book. We call it the blue book that kind of explains people. It's a Bible study to help someone grow. But I Challenge every follower of Jesus here today to ask themselves, have I helped someone become a follower, explained, led, prayed, and taken them to the waters of baptism? It may start with your own children. But if you haven't, I want to challenge you to start praying, God, help me to do that. I'm a follower, and I want to help make followers.